Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Exodus. We will be back in Exodus 12, where we left off a few weeks ago. Picking it up in verse 29, once we get going. But first, the year was 1930, when a baby boy named John was born in southern Mississippi. John's mother died when he was just seven months old. His father, shortly thereafter, abandoned him and his siblings. So they were raised by extended family and grandparents, who at the time were working as sharecroppers. Sharecroppers, as an African-American family living in the deeply segregated and systemically racist society of the South. At age 17, 1947, John ended up fleeing from his hometown at the urging of his family after his brother, who had just returned home to Mississippi from serving in World War II, was fatally and unlawfully shot and killed by a white police officer. John fled to and settled in Southern California, where he would proceed to begin a new life, meet a woman who would become his wife. They would have kids. He would find himself in a good-paying job. And most meaningfully, in California is where he became a Christian, where he devoted his life to Christ. Yet despite this pretty comfortable and steady life in California, as many would describe it, John began to feel God calling him back to Mississippi. And in 1960, at the age of 30, he returned with his family with a primary desire, in his words, to proclaim the gospel that had transformed his life. But as you know, being that it was 1960, John now found himself back in the Deep South just as the civil rights movement was picking up steam after starting in the previous decade. And so he began a ministry that not only proclaimed the gospel, but also helped the needs of the deeply impoverished and oppressed population of southern Mississippi And he was now in the midst of advocating for fellow African-Americans against systemic injustice of white power that reigned supreme, serving alongside Martin Luther King, among others. This John was John Perkins. And John Perkins followed an age-old path of feeling God's call out of a comfortable lifestyle and back into a ministry in his hometown to not only proclaim the gospel, but to help the oppressed. This is a path, an age-old path, that was initially carved out and traveled about 4,000 years earlier by a man named Moses. The parallels are pretty stunning. Moses was born and raised in Egypt. He too grew to see and experience the injustices of his people, and so he fled the land. He went not to Southern California, but to the land of Midian, where he met a woman who'd become his wife. They'd have children. He too would 
finds steady work as a shepherd working for his father-in-law, and yet had an experience with God where he was called to return back to his home town and advocate for his people. It's not the easiest life Moses could have lived. It, again, seemed to have it pretty good where he was, but then, and in 1960 and today, God rarely, if ever, calls his people to what is easy, to what is most comfortable and most secure. Moses was called to go back to Egypt to take his people out between one and two million total when you count women and children. And they were the working class for the uh, ancient kingdom of Egypt. They were the slave labor for Pharaoh. And we have been walking through this book since uh, the beginning of the new year, a year that has taken us all by surprise to say the least. And after taking a two-week break from that series for Palm Sunday and Easter, now we return back to this book. And we're again going to dive into the passage this morning that gives the book of Exodus its name, Exodus, right? The passage where the nation of Israel is taken out of the land of Egypt. And um, really, it was just providential timing of kind of where we broke in the story for Holy Week. uh, Because the last passage we saw and walked uh, through together in Exodus was the front half of chapter 12, when God instated the the Passover, the meal that would serve as a remembrance of the exodus for Israel, and and, and the meal that Jesus kind of shared with his disciples the night he was arrested and the night before he was crucified. And I wish I could say that church, I had that planned all along, right? From day one, we were going to go up to the Passover and exodus break for Holy Week, and that it was just going to be awesome timing. Wish I could tell you that was the plan But to be honest, that is just God's kind providence toward us because I did not plan that and just want to make that crystal clear. But the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we dwelled upon, thought about, together, worshipped Him for over these last couple of weeks, that is the story beneath the story of all of history. Uh, and certainly the story beneath the story of the whole Old Testament, that, that Jesus is the story beneath the story, right? That, that, and he applied that at the, the, the Passover dinner, um, at the Last Supper, um, but then he explicitly states it in Luke 24, when after he was raised again, uh, he comes across two of his disciples that are, uh, don't realize he's been raised again, and they're kind of um, mourning all that they um, have lost in their leader being crucified. And he says to them, This on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Listen, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Do you see it? Everything written in the law of Moses has Jesus as the story beneath the story. The law of Moses, including the first five books of the Bible, including Exodus, where we return back to. Which is just a reminder for us, again, that no study of an Old Testament passage or sermon 
is complete until it is connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That once you see what happens to Christ, it changes the way you look back. Like a, like a movie that has a surprise ending that makes you watch, have to watch the movie again to see um, all that you've missed now that you know what you know after seeing it for the first time. So with renewed energy from Holy Week, we return to Exodus and what a passage we have to return to. So let's dig in. This is Exodus 12. We're going to just start with verses 29 to 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. We're going to see a progression in our passages this morning Starting with, number one, God redeems. i got to be honest, I, I can't read these verses either just now or while studying for the sermon without getting the same lump in my throat each time. That these verses are weighty. And it kind of wells up a mixture of, of grief and, and, and worship when I consider the tenth plague. And I would just start by cautioning us against having these verses just cast God in our mind as this angry, dangerous God who flies off the handle and, and because that's a way that many people view God or gods. Not, not only today, but across all of human history that, that you better just appease God or He'll get you. Right? That, that, that's not what this passage should well up in us. That's not the type of grief it should cause but rather the grief is toward the hard heart of Pharaoh who refused to heed the clear warnings of God through Moses to protect the people of Egypt. We've walked through over several weeks the first nine plagues of of, of God warning Pharaoh, clearly telling him through Moses what's going to happen if he does not listen, if he continues to harden his heart and enslave this entire nation of abusing his power, of having no care for men, women, and children who have been made in the image of God, but rather just using them for his own systemic reasons to put them into slavery. And then we come to this tenth plague the death of the firstborn. And in this tenth plague that God would carry out himself, we see God's power enacting a great reversal of evil. If you remember all the way back from Exodus chapter 1, when, when, when there was a law in the land for, for the Egyptians to kill Hebrew children by throwing them into the Nile. And God foreshadowed this final plague when he told Moses in chapter 4 as he began his his, uh, journey from from Midian back to Egypt. He told him in verse 22 of chapter 4, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And Pharaoh did refuse. He was not willing to listen or respond to God's word. He refused to take himself off the throne, his own desires, his own power. Refused to give up his own control. And at midnight, this plague was carried out. And this plague was no respecter of persons. It didn't care what social class you were in. It didn't care if you were rich or if you were poor. There was no hierarchy. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, the richest, the most protected child in the kingdom, all the way down to the captives and the livestock within Egypt. And there was a great cry. And I can't even imagine. A night of unbelievable grief and suffering. And yet, it was also a night of provision. For we know from earlier in chapter 12 that God provided His people a sacrifice to redeem their lives and the lives of their firstborn to keep them from death. And the way He would redeem it is if in each home they would sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so God would pass over their homes and, quote, no plague would befall them. That's the provision of redemption, that God provides what God demands. And He redeems by the blood of the Lamb. He offers that gift that can be received in faith. And this plague is so deep, the pain is so great throughout the land of Egypt, so significant that not only does Pharaoh relent as God said he would, but he summons Moses in the middle of the night. He does not wait until morning, and he calls him in, and he demands, you leave now. Take your nation, your herds, your flocks, and get out. Be gone. Before we move on, we need to be reminded that the difference between Egypt's suffering and Israel's rejoicing was not Israel's moral behavior, right? It was not moral's righteousness as, as they were the good guys, so they got to go free. And the Egyptians were the bad guys, and so they were punished. That's not the difference. Israel deserved judgment just like Egypt. Because all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All rebel against Him. No one is innocent standing before Him. So the only difference between death and life, between the Israelites and the Egyptians, was the blood of the Lamb. That those under blood would be redeemed. And it was God's kindness and grace to make provision through a sacrifice. So you know what I mean when I'm saying like grief and worship? It's just kind of a strange mixture of emotions in these verses that this tenth plague kind of wells up in me. And I think it's especially doing that because fresh on my mind is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
the place where a collision of wrath and grace, of death and life, of blood and redemption. All right, let's keep going. We're going to now read verses 33 to 42. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. We saw number one, God redeems. And then we see the progression. That Number two, God redeems from slavery. So, so there it is. There, there's the passage, right? There, there are the verses of the actual Exodus, the, the premier salvation event of God's people in the Old Testament that, that the rest of the Bible will look back upon and reflect upon as it points to Jesus Christ. And, and I want us to see these verses, this redemption from slavery, primarily as fulfillment. We have a God who makes and perfectly fulfills his promises according to his purpose, purposes in his perfect timing. And, and, and these verses just showed the fulfillment of three specific promises. And I want to look at one at a time. First, the fulfilled promise to free Israel. It was at the burning bush back in Exodus 3 when God told Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out, up out of the land. Oh, and by the way, Moses, I'm going to use you to make it happen. Not because I need you, Moses, but because I am choosing to do it through you. It's a promise that Moses heard and as we know and looked at extensively, his initial response was not excitement, was not like, hey, let's go. When do we leave? No. He was terrified. Understandably so. Because immediately he knows what it's like in Egypt. How would it be that Pharaoh would freely release over a million, maybe when you add it all up, close to two million people? who make up his slave labor? And who is he to do anything, let alone that? Moses asked, who am I? It was an impossible ask. And yet, on this very day, the Lord fulfilled 
His promise. Church, God does not give promises that He doesn't keep. If He says it, He will do it. And this promise was not just to Moses. This was foreseen and promised long before Moses was even born. In fact, centuries before. After God appeared to Abraham to announce that it was going to be through his family line that he will dwell and bless and be present amongst his people, and that he would bless him and his family so that they will be a blessing to all the families and nations of the earth. And he says this in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out. God frees Israel. That these verses that we just read, the weight of these verses is God making good on a 400-year promise. If there's anything we need to dwell on more in our lives as we in the church are sojourners in a foreign land, if there's anything that we need to be reminded of day in and day out, it's this, that God perfectly fulfills His promises according to His purposes in His perfect timing. Do you believe that? That you can trust Him, even and especially when you don't see it. His promises never fail. Second, the fulfilled promise of great possessions. Uh, If you were following along in those verses that I just read in Genesis 15, you might have noticed I left off the final phrase of verse 14. And afterward they shall come out, look, with great possessions. That that this is not going to be an escape where they leave with nothing, right? With with no belongings. They, They won't just have the clothes on their back. They won't be a poor nation. They will venture out of Egypt, not as slaves, but as a rich nation with great possessions. How in the world would that ever happen? We just read it in Exodus 12. That yes, they left quickly in the middle of the night, but they left with their livestock and then with silver and with gold and clothing. And here's the kicker. They didn't steal any of it. They didn't trick the Egyptians. They asked for it. And the Egyptians gave them what they asked for. Did did you notice that, right? They they, they weren't just kind of driven out. They are given possessions. Why? Here's the thing. We don't really know why. It it could be that they were kind of giving payment for, for lost time. It could be that the Egyptians were just so afraid of what God had just done in this plague that they think, hey, if we just give it all away, maybe He will have mercy on us. We, we don't know. But it wasn't stolen. It was given. And when Moses says that they plundered the Egyptians, 
It doesn't mean what plundered in the way that we often think, that they raided their homes and, again, they stole from them. But that's a use of language that indicates that their God triumphed over Egypt's false gods. You know, it's interesting. There was no such thing as an atheist ancient kingdom. Every kingdom had their gods. Every kingdom had a belief in the spiritual realm. And so when kingdoms were overtaken in the ancient world, it was understood that that was a marker of um, their gods being overtaken by the invading kingdom's gods. And, And so all the plagues was not primarily God judging the Egyptian people. It was God exposing and judging and defeating the false Egyptian gods. Israel left Egypt with great possessions. And then just to give you a little preview of the rest of our series in Exodus, um, these possessions will be meaningful. And these possessions will be used for both good and evil. These possessions would be the raw material in which they would construct the tabernacle, where God's glory would dwell and where sacrifices would be made but they would also be the raw material in which they would construct a golden calf in rebellion and rejection to this God that saved them. So just listen close. Our possessions can be used as a means of giving glory to God and worshiping God and furthering His kingdom and helping others or they can be used as a means to rebel against God and pursue self-glory and consume for just our own good. But we are all stewards of what God gives us. And faithfulness is not bound by how many possessions we have or don't have. It's bound by how we use what we do have to glorify God and further His kingdom and choosing His glory over self-glory. Third promise. It's the fulfilled promise to bless the nations. There's a small detail that I never noticed in Exodus until closely studying for this series and specifically for this sermon. And again, this is why we should pay attention to the text. Like, when you're studying the Bible, what does it say? I want to read it. I want to study it. I want to read it close. I don't want to just rush to broad judgments of read it once and just think I know what it means. I don't want to just rush to general talking points about the Bible. I want to wring this Bible out by reading it closely, and that will enrich the study of our Word. But did you notice verse 38? Because I never did until now that a mixed multitude also went up with them. Did you know that some amount, there's not an exact number, but multitude does not tend to indicate a small number? Did you know that a mixed multitude of Egyptians and maybe slaves from other nations left with the nation of Israel in the Exodus? That they were drawn to God. They were drawn to God's power. 
and being a part of God's people. And they are so drawn to God's presence through being part of God's people. And the Israelites said, come, come with us. Come be a part of us. Come worship God. Leave Egypt. Come with us. Because again, God promised Abraham not just that he will bless his family line, but he will bless them so that they will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. How do you bless the nations? You proclaim God's power and you invite people into God's presence. This is a corporate deal, right? God never saves you just to be alone. He draws us to be a people who together further a kingdom for God's glory. From here, we're not going to read it, but verses 43 through 50, we see that the first thing the nation of Israel does after leaving Egypt is to observe the Passover, which we dug into a few weeks ago. And Moses and Aaron take those instructions they receive from the Lord and they give them again to the nation of Israel to conclude chapter 12. And then chapter 13 is a chapter where he then repeats the instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the word that just comes up again and again at the end of 12 and the beginning of 13 is the word remember. And it's why that this passage is kind of repeated after he just said it in the beginning of chapter 12. But now they're on this side of the Exodus. And Moses is saying, don't forget, remember your God. Remember what you've been saved from. But there's one addition to chapter 13, other than the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was not formally spoken about. And I want to highlight that to conclude our time this morning. So follow along as we read um, Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2, and then 11 through 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What's the, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Final point as we continue with the progression Number one, God redeems. Number two, God redeems from slavery. Number three, God redeems from slavery for worship. The rest of chapter 13, which we did not read, walks through the purpose and train of thought of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, we, again, talked about that. I encourage you, if you missed the sermon on March 29th, to kind of walk through what that means but in a nutshell, the Passover is God taking, is, is kind of a remembrance of God taking Israel out of Egypt. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows 
is the remembrance and the process of God taking Egypt out of the nation of Israel. Meaning, I have saved you from slavery, and now I want to get the slavery to sin and idolatry out of you. That this feast had a meaning to rid them of the sin that remains, which we will see very quickly in our series, It Remains. And so the point is similar now to the firstborn and, and consecrating and dedicating the firstborn to the Lord. That it is a form of worship. It's a form of dedication to the Lord now that you have been saved. That this is the progression of this whole book. That God's grace comes upon them. And God saves them by the blood of the Lamb. And now He frees them for the purpose of worship. And unfortunately, this is the most neglected aspect of not only the book of Exodus, but of all of Christianity. That this is why God saves. For His name's sake. Primarily for the glory of His name. That we glorify God because we've been saved by God. And this is, again, the flow of the entire Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. And so I will repeat it as often as I'm able. That God saves us by grace, through faith, by blood. And as a result of that, we dedicate ourselves in worship to Him. And so I just want to slow down for a moment and say what I hope is as lovingly as I can that I guarantee some of you have this backwards. And maybe I've had this backwards ever since you were young or however long you've interacted with Christian faith. Or at the very least, you have very dear people in your life who have this backwards, and it's tragic. That Christianity is not, you live a good life, you obey, you be as morally upright as you can, you do as many of the religious activities in a church that is possible, of attending and Bible reading and doing good deeds, especially in a time like this when it's needed, give some money maybe, and then God saves you. That's not Christianity. And yet, so many believe that. That based on how you view your own goodness, that you are either accepted or rejected based on that goodness. And that leads to high highs, if you think you're good, and low lows if you think you're too far gone. But the Bible's message is literally the direct opposite. And we see it in the overarching story of Exodus. That God saves by grace, through blood, by faith, and then by accepting that gift, by accepting that provision, by believing in Him and nothing in yourself, that because that is true, 
You respond by worshiping. You respond by serving. You respond by committing to a community of faith. You respond by dedicating your life and your thoughts and your actions to him. Scott Sauls, he's a pastor down in Nashville. He was formerly with Tim Keller at Redeemer in the city. He, he put everything I'm trying to say in a single tweet, and that's why he's um, a better pastor than me. He says it precisely. I will have it on the screen. God said, I don't condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. Reverse those sentences, and you lose Christianity. I'll have AJ leave that quote up on the screen for a couple moments, and I encourage you, take a picture of it, write it down, chew on that. But back to Exodus 13 as we wrap up. Notice that the firstborn of every animal shall be sacrificed to the Lord, and then the firstborn son shall be not sacrificed, but redeemed. By what? Again, the blood of a lamb. And where many ancient cultures did practice child sacrifice, Israel was distinguished in the ancient world because every child is made in the image of God. And God's people have always protected the value and the sanctity of life of both children and unborn children. And so Moses says, when, when children ask, hey, why do we do this? What's, what's the point of all this? And you're dedicating, and you're sacrificing. When a firstborn child is born, God says, you tell them, clearly tell them. They're going to ask, you tell them this, that by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. You tell them that we have a great redeemer. So every male would be redeemed by the blood of the lamb, and as Israel will form into a cohesive nation in the years and centuries and millennium ahead, the firstborn son would always be ceremonially dedicated at the temple after he was born. For many of you, that sounds familiar, especially those who are familiar with the Christmas story. Because it was eight days after Jesus was born that Joseph and Mary went to the temple in Jerusalem to do what? To dedicate their firstborn to the Lord. And in that passage, Luke chapter 2, what verse does Luke quote? Exodus 13, verse 1. But more importantly, the Apostle Paul will pick up on this and he will write and speak of Jesus to be the ultimate firstborn. Colossians 1.15, he, he referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so when Paul calls Jesus the firstborn, he's not saying that Jesus was created because Jesus is eternal. He always was, he always is, and always will be a part of the triune God. But Paul is calling him the ultimate firstborn, connecting him to Israel's history of Christ dedicating his life to the will of the Father 
to be the redemption for all mankind by giving his own life. Okay, right here at the end, here's where we connect all the dots. From Exodus 13 through Christ and the whole Bible. God takes the life of all the firstborn of Egypt in judgment. He saves and redeems the firstborn of Israel by a sacrifice of a lamb. And then at the cross, he offers up his own firstborn son to take the judgment upon himself in order to redeem men and women from sin, past, present, and future. This is the Bible, and it's not some secret revelation. This is not brilliant work by me. This is what the Bible connects for us. This is the gospel, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. For whoever would repent of their sin, believe in him, will receive no condemnation, but be given eternal life. This is grief and worship that we grieve over sin. And then repent of that sin and worship God for saving us and freeing us from the guilt and the shame. And then we live a life that is dedicated to the eternal Lamb of God, the eternal firstborn who right now stands at the right hand of God. And we go and we worship And we today answer the call on our lives to forsake comfort in order to pour ourselves out to further God's kingdom by proclaiming his gospel, by loving others, particularly those who are oppressed. For Jesus himself emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And Moses, who left Midian to return to Egypt and by God's grace freed those uh, who were under oppression. And men like John Perkins, who returned to Mississippi Because God called him to proclaim Christ and further God's kingdom by pushing back against systemic injustice. And that led him to start Mendenhall Ministries, our missions partner now at Grace for the last 20 years, to provide holistic needs for the community and use it as a platform to connect the lost to Jesus Christ. John Perkins, 90 years old, just still living, just wrote a book last year on what? Racial reconciliation in the church. Still being used by God. Still pushing back against systems. Still proclaiming the gospel. God saves us. And we dedicate our lives to him. And we forsake comfort for the sake of his kingdom. What's that going to look like for you? Where is God calling you? Let it be for his glory and be because of the blood of the lamb that you are freed and redeemed from slavery to worship him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity in it. We thank you how it connects through the entire Old Testament, New Testament, Lord, and we thank you for it it, leading to and flowing from the cross of Jesus Christ, Lord. Stir in us the desire to gaze upon you and act accordingly as you would have us, Lord. 
Give us the grace to forsake comfort for the sake of your kingdom and for the good of others around us. And let it be for your glory and your glory alone. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.